The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to your favorite book of the Bible and mine, the book of Leviticus. The title of my message for you today is, Come On In. What a wonderful invitation that is from the Lord to each and every one of us to come on in, and we'll talk about what that means. But I want to start by talking about why we as a church celebrate and study the feasts of the Lord. And we do so for a couple of different reasons. There are a lot of great reasons to study the annual feasts of the Lord. But there are two specifically that I want to highlight for you today. And the first is that they teach us about what Jesus has done for us through his death on the cross individually. Does that make sense? By looking at the feast, we get a better sense, a better understanding of what Jesus accomplished when he went to Calvary's cross. And and that's a personal word for each one of us individually. But not only do they speak to us individually, also prophetically in studying the feasts of the Lord, we're given a window into what has been and what will be. So here's what that means. If you want to fall more in love with Jesus today, anybody in that camp, I know I am, praise the Lord. If you want to fall more in love with Jesus, or if you're curious about where we sit in the times and where we land on the prophetic calendar, then you should start studying the feasts of the Lord because they're going to fuel your passion and provide you with more or less a blueprint for what is to come. Now, The word feast, the Hebrew word for feast is moed. Everybody say moed. And this will be review for some of you, but for others of you, it'll be new. The word moed means appointment or appointed time. So there are these seven feasts sprinkled throughout Israel's calendar year that were divine appointments where God says, I want you to gather in Jerusalem. I want you to worship corporately, and I promise to meet with you on these days. They are divine appointments. Now, there's another phrase that scripture uses to refer to the feasts, and they call them the holy convocations. That's an interesting phrase, and here's what it means. It literally was used to describe a dress rehearsal. You know how it is. Oftentimes before a big ceremony, perhaps like a wedding or or maybe a big concert, there will be a dress rehearsal, a dry run of the event where you kind of go through the motions in anticipation of the actual thing. And God says, these feasts are dress rehearsals. And you say, dress rehearsals of what? They are dress rehearsals for the coming of the Lord. They tell us about what God has done and about what he's getting to do. From a prophetic standpoint, each one of Israel's feasts either points to the Messiah's first coming or his second coming. Now, the first four feasts are all clumped together, and they occur in the springtime. They are, uh, it starts with the Feast of Passover, and then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Pentecost, and they all kind of happen together. And what's amazing is when you look at the life of Jesus, you find that he fulfilled each and every one of those feasts on the exact day. He fulfilled them. He was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, rose from the dead on first fruits, and then 50 days later, the Holy Spirit gets poured out on the day of Pentecost. So all of those feasts have to do with the first coming of Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled them perfectly. Now, after Pentecost, there's a, a long gap 
during the, the summer months. And, and that's when everyone would return to their homes and they would go about their business and, and, and work in the fields and bring in the harvest. And then in the fall, everyone would regather in Jerusalem to celebrate the final three remaining feasts. And the one that kicked it all off is the Feast of Trumpets. This is the one we just celebrated just this last weekend. And these are the ones we get excited about because these are the next events to occur on God's prophetic calendar. Prophetically, we believe that the Feast of Trumpets points to an event that the scriptures describe as the rapture of the church, where the church gets caught up into the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, this is something that could literally happen at any moment. As the Lord decides and determines that the harvest is complete, that last person gets saved, and then there's going to be the blast of a trumpet, which is the voice of God, and will be caught up into his presence. Now, after that happens, the Lord is going to once again turn his attention to the Jewish people. And that leads us to the sixth feast, the one we're going to talk about today, the Day of Atonement. Now, the Feast of Trumpets happens on the first and second days of the seventh month. And the Day of Atonement, what we're celebrating today, happens on the tenth day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. Now, in that intervening time, that, that seven days in between Trumpets and Day of Atonement, the high priest would remove himself from the community and he wouldn't be seen for seven Days. Why? Because he wanted to keep himself from becoming defiled because he had some important tasks to carry out on this day. Then after being gone for a week, he would re-emerge on the eighth day to do his duties on the Day of Atonement. Let's read about that here in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29. It says, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. Praise the Lord for that. It is a day of Sabbath rest and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest, is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So here we have kind of the instructions regarding the Day of Atonement. And what I notice, and what I want you to notice with me right off the bat, is there are some notable differences between this feast and the other six feasts that Israel celebrated. For starters, this is the only one of Israel's feasts where there was no real feasting. (laughs) Even the word feast is missing from the title of this day. It's simply referred to as the Day of Atonement. 
On all the other feasts, God commands his people to gather and to celebrate and to rejoice and to blow the shofar. But on this day, instead of those things, the the rejoicing is replaced with self-reflection, self-denial. The feasting is replaced with fasting. So this is a solemn day. It is a holy day. It is a day to reflect on the last year and the atonement of your sins. Another difference is that while everybody often participated or had a role to play in the other feasts, on this day, it was the high priest and him alone who performed all the tasks and did all the work. On this day, his actions would determine the fate of the entire community. A third difference is that while Israel's other feasts all tended to be, tended to be rooted in either some historical event like the Passover or some part of the the harvest cycle, like Pentecost, Yom Kippur, as it's also referred to as, or the Day of Atonement, is focused singularly on the forgiveness of sins. It was all about receiving forgiveness as a people, and for that reason, it was considered the most holy day of the year. Israelites to this day simply refer to it as the day, and that title is a reference to the fact that this is when their sins were forgiven. They were atoned for. That's the word that keeps showing up in our text. Now, when you make atonement for something, you're making restitution for a wrong that has been committed. The, the Hebrew word for atonement is kafar, and it literally means to cover over. So this is the day when the sins of the people would be covered over. And the way that God provided a covering for his people on this day is the same way he covered over all of their sins. Under the old covenant, that covering came through the shed blood of a sacrificial animal. And that's what atonement was all about. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, the, um, the day kind of emphasized the role of the high priest. And I'm going somewhere with all of this. And I know we're doing some, some heavy work here on the front end of this sermon, but it's going to all come together in a few moments if you can stay with me. But I need you to track with this. The, the, the day focused on the work of the high priest. And the, the first part of Leviticus 16 outlines for us all that he would do. And, and since we don't have time to read through, you know, the other 28 verses, I want to just summarize for you over the next couple of minutes, everything that the high priest would do on that day, because it speaks to us and what the Lord wants to do in our lives. The day began with the high priest going into a vestibule and he would remove his priestly garments. These were made of gold and purples and blues and, and they were ornate and they were, he was decked out and that's what he typically wore. God kind of spe- specified what the high priest was to wear, but he would take those ornate garments off and he would put on a simple white linen garment. Then he would go and he would sacrifice a bull and he did this for his own sins He wasn't ready yet to deal with the sins of the people. Because the high priest was a man and therefore a sinner, he had to deal with his own sins first. So he would sacrifice this bull. And once the bull had been sacrificed, he would take his finger and he would dip it in the blood. And then he would walk through the tabernacle beyond the holy place and through a veil into a space known as the Holy of Holies. Now, this was the holiest piece of of real estate on the planet. It's where God's Shekinah glory manifested itself. There above the Ark of the Covenant, you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant, was this 
box made of wood that was covered in gold. There were these two golden cherubim, these angels on either side of it. And there above that was the mercy seat. And, and in the presence of God, this is the only time in the entire year when, when the high priest was allowed or anyone was allowed for that matter into the presence of God. And there on the mercy seat, he would sprinkle the blood of this sacrifice seven times. And if he had done everything just right, he would re-emerge from the Holy of Holies and come back out. But if he hadn't, if there was secret sin in his life, or yet if he hadn't approached everything in the prescribed manner, then he would drop dead in the presence of the Lord. Now, if that happened, the other priest would pull him out by a rope that had been attached to his ankle. The, the rope allowed the other priest to retrieve his body without having to go into the, the, the holy of holies themselves, you know, because then they too would fall dead. Now, again, all of this work was simply to take care of his sins. And so the work was still just getting started. After he had dealt with his own sins, he had to deal with the, the tainted nature of the tabernacle itself. So he would go and he would get more blood from the sacrificed bull and he would apply it to the horns of the altar. He would apply it to all the instruments in the tabernacle and he would sprinkle the blood on the tabernacle itself. Now at this point, some of you are thinking, well, isn't the tabernacle a holy place? Why did it need to be applied with the blood? And the answer is because sin defiles everything it touches. And so after he'd completed all that, he's finally ready now to deal with the sins of the community. And here's where things kind of get a little more interesting. Two goats were required to atone for the people's sin. And what he would do is he would cast lots between the two goats. And the one that was the Lord's goat, he would now take and sacrifice. And remember, the high priest is doing all the work by himself. Now he would dip his finger in that blood. He would go back into the Holy of Holies. And once again, in the presence of the Lord, he would sprinkle the blood seven times above the mercy seat. Then he would go back out and he would take his hands and he would place his hands on the surviving goat, which was called the scapegoat or the Azazel. And in a loud voice, he would audibly confess the sins of the nation and thus transfer in a symbolic way the sins of the people onto this scapegoat. And he would turn it around to face the people and it would be led out the eastern gate and up the Mount of Olives and be driven into the wilderness, never to be seen from or heard from again. And as it went, there was this scarlet thread that would be tied around the scapegoat's neck. And it was said at that time that if God had heard the prayers and received the sacrifices of the nation, that scarlet thread around the scapegoat's neck would turn white. And it served as an indication that God had truly atoned for or covered the sins of the nation. And all of this pictured the work that Christ would ultimately do. But the high priest's work wasn't done, not just yet. <laughs> It had been a long day. He'd sacrificed several animals. He'd gone in and out and, and all the rest. But there was still one more thing he had to do. His garments that he'd been working in, these white linen garments, were now soiled and splattered with the blood from these different sacrifices. And so he would go back into the vestibule and he would take those off and he would once again put on his royal priestly garments. Then he would reemerge and this is what he would say if everything had gone according to the prescribed pattern. He would say, it's finished. And when he said that, 
all the nation would erupt in, in, in raucous you know, celebration because it meant that the atonement had taken. Now, this would last for the following year. And then the whole process would have to play itself out all over again. Okay, thank you for staying with me. Now let's get into what in the world all of this means. I mean, why would God prescribe all of these rituals and all of these strange ceremonies? And what, for all of that, what does the Day of Atonement have to do with any of us? And there's a couple of parts to this. Remember how I told you at the outset of this study that all the feasts of the Lord have a kind of a dual purpose. They speak to us on a personal level of what Jesus has done for us through his work on the cross. But they also point to prophetically what God's plan is for the redemption of the world. And so I want to talk about those two things. If you have your notes, go ahead and pull those out and you can fill in the first blanks on your outline today. Here's what I want you to see. The day of atonement anticipates what God is going to do with the nation, with Israel nationally. So on one level, prophetically, this day points to a coming day. When God is going to deal with the sins of his people, the nation of Israel. You know, today, the vast majority of the church or the body of Christ is made up of Gentiles, right? I imagine we probably have a a few Jewish believers in the house today, and and they're always represented. And we thank God for you and for your godly heritage and, and what you bring and add to our body. But for the most part, the church is made up of Gentiles. Now, why is that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about this veil that remains over the eyes of God's people so that for the most part, they can't recognize Jesus as their Messiah and they reject him. Now, in some cases, that veil gets removed and, and they are saved and that's beautiful. But the vast majority of Jewish people are resistant to the gospel. And because of that, The church has erred in wrongly concluding that God is through with the Jewish people. And so in large swaths of the Christian church, you have this teaching that has been propagated that says that the church has replaced Israel. And you need to know this. That is a demonic lie. And it it has direct bearing on your life. Because if God can turn his back on the Jewish people and if he can reject them, them, then who's to say he's not going to do the same thing? with us. And so God is not through with the Jew. And by the way, that's what Romans chapters 9 through 11 is all about. And and in that section of your Bible, Paul delves into God's plan to redeem the Jewish people. And at one point he says this, all of Israel will be saved. And that is our hope and our prayer that God would reveal himself and bring revival to the nation of Israel. Somebody say amen. So when is this revival going to take place? Well, I think we're seeing the initial seeds of it taking root even now, and more and more Jewish people are coming to Jesus. We have friends in Israel that, that have a ministry called One for Israel, and they, they release these videos um, of where Jewish people in Hebrew give their testimony of how they met Messiah. And what's amazing is that testimonies are in Hebrew. And there are about 9 million Hebrew-speaking Jewish people on the planet. But some of these videos have 10 or 20 million views. The word is getting out. More and more Jews are getting curious and coming to Jesus. Praise the Lord. But I don't think the fullness of that revival will happen until 
The church is removed in the rapture, and God once again turns his attention to the Jewish people. Remember how I said, after the Feast of Trumpets, the high priest would remove himself for seven days. That's perhaps an indication that we'll be with the Lord honeymooning in heaven, and then God will turn his attention to the Jewish people. And at some point during the tribulation period, there's going to be mass revival. I was talking to a friend the other day. He was suggesting perhaps it's going to take place when the Antichrist, during that seven-year tribulation period, when the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple and declares himself to be God, the Bible describes all of this in places like Matthew 24 in the book of Revelation. It says there will be a rebuilt temple, and at some point the Antichrist will go in, he will put a stop to the, the Jews' sacrifices, and he will demand to be worshipped as God. And, and he was saying, I think that's going to be the event that removes the veil so they are exposed to the lies and they recognize Jesus as their Savior, perhaps. We also know that during the tribulation period, this is in the book of Revelation, there are going to be 144,000 Jewish believers in Yeshua, Jesus, that he's going to anoint, that he's going to protect, and that he's going to empower to go out and spread the gospel. Now, in the New Testament, we get an example of what happens when one zealous man for the faith, a, a, a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, has a radical conversion experience there on the Damascus Road, and he becomes Paul the Apostle, and he plants churches everywhere, and he essentially turns the world upside down with the gospel. And so we see what God was able to do with one converted Jew who went all in for Jesus. Imagine what he could do with 144,000 of them. The prophet Zechariah wrote about what's going to happen ultimately when Jesus comes back in his second coming. And I want to read it with you. This is Zechariah 12.10. Let's read this together out loud. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So the Lord is going to reveal himself. He's going to pour out his grace on the nation of Israel. And they'll come to faith when they look on him and they see through eyes of faith, Jesus was our Messiah. The one we rejected has become the head of the coroner. And it says in the following chapter, chapter 13, that they'll say to him on that day, where did you receive these wounds in your hands? And he will say, in the house of my friends. And so because of the emphasis on the national covering of sin, I believe this feast points to that day that Zechariah prophesied during the tribulation period, when the Jewish people will experience revival in unprecedented numbers. So that's what's happening through the prophetic lens. But I want to finish by talking about what all of this means to us personally. So fill this in in your notes if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do so. If you're not taking notes, go ahead and pull out a pen and fill it in anyways. The work of the high priest pictures what Jesus did for us personally. So nationally, it deals with Israel and what's going to happen in the end days. But personally, it pictures what Jesus did for us through his death on the cross. You see, the whole thing comes back to and arises out of this sin problem that we all share. And because of our sin, we are 
unable to draw near to the Lord. There's something intrinsic within the human spirit that longs to be connected, to be at one with the Lord. But because of our sin, we also recognize that this isn't possible. Because our sins have separated us from God. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Let's read that together out loud. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Listen, friends. This is the nature of sin. Sin creates separation. It distances you from God. It kills. It destroys. It obliterates everything that it touches. Every day we are confronted with the fallout and the effects of sin. It kills marriages. It destroys joy. It robs us of our peace. It takes away our intimacy with those we love. And ultimately it kills our intimacy with God and creates distance. That's why we need a covering for our sin. And by the way, that's what the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament and ultimately what the Day of Atonement was all about. The blood of a substitute provides a covering so that we can draw near and have fellowship with God. And yet it was a faulty system from the beginning. Why? Because it was never possible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin. At best, all those sacrifices could do. And and keep in mind, we're reading about one sacrifice here, but it it was a bloody mess. There were morning sacrifices. There were evening sacrifices. On the Passover feast, there were hundreds of thousands of lambs that were slain. But it could never fully do the job. It couldn't take away sins. All it could do was provide a temporary covering, which is why God says this this feast, or rather this day, it's to be perpetuated annually in perpetuity. In Psalm 40, David recognizes and then acknowledges the inadequacy of blood sacrifices to really pay for his sins when he writes this. And I'll just read this one to you. This is Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. He said, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you didn't require. Then I said, here I am. I've come. It's written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Now, what's David saying? You didn't desire sacrifices and offerings. What do you mean, David? It's all over the Old Testament. We just read about God outlining, these are the sacrifices you must do. And yet David realizes, no, 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 all of those other sacrifices, the bulls, the goats, the lambs, it's all pointing to one who is ultimately to come that can remove sin. That's why by the Spirit of God says, you've prepared for me a body. The author of the book of Hebrews lays hold of this, and he says that that was the words of Jesus. Jesus was speaking through David, and it's all about him. You see, what you need to understand, and this is where it gets really personal, friends, is that Jesus is our high priest who comes to make atonement for our sins. Someone say, praise the Lord, even if you don't understand it. You see, Jesus is our high priest. Just as the high priest day began with him setting aside his ornate priestly garments, the gold, the purple, the blue, all the rest, and donning a white, simple, sacred linen garment. 
Our story of redemption or atonement begins with our high priest, Jesus, setting aside his glory in heaven and humbling himself and leaving his throne to come to this earth. He traded majesty for a manger. He traded glory for a grave. And he traded a royal scepter for a servant's cloth. He who thought it not robbery to be considered equal with God made himself nothing and took upon himself the form of a servant. Why? So he could serve as our mediator, our high priest. Now, what does that mean on a practical level? Here's what it means. Because Jesus is fully man, it means he knows what you're going through. He's able to empathize with you in your weaknesses. He's able to walk with you through your struggles and through your trials. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to weep. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to mourn and, and grieve and all the rest. And so he can empathize with you on a human level. But he can also help you because he's not just a man like those earthly priests. He's also fully God. He's divine. And in his divinity, he can help you through those things and give you victory over those temptations. He is our high priest who does all the work for us. It's not about what you can do to get right with God. Remember this day, it was the work of the high priest that determined the fate of the nation, even so it is the work of our great high priest, Jesus, upon which our salvation swings or hinges. He's our high priest, but he's also our sacrifice. Now, the high priest on that day, the Day of Atonement, had to first atone for his own sins by sacrificing a bull, and then there was the goat, and then there was another goat. Well, Jesus is all of those sacrifices rolled into one. First of all, he didn't need to sacrifice for himself because he's sinless. But he is pictured in the sacrifice of the goat because he bore our sins on the cross, but he's also the scapegoat. Remember how I said the high priest would then come out having sprinkled the blood seven times on the mercy seat. He would come out and he would take that bloody finger and he would apply it, his hands to the scapegoat and he would confess the sins of the nation over that goat. Jesus bore our sins on Calvary. That's when, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, again, we go back to that moment where he would sprinkle the blood. I've brought this up a number of times because I want to paint a picture for you. Seven times over the mercy seat, the box between the cherubim. Think with me. Go back in your mind's eye to that very first Easter morning. We join Mary as she makes her way to the tomb. And after first, at first running away in fright, she returns to the tomb. And John's gospel tells us that Mary looks in. And what does she see? She sees the place where Jesus' body had laid. And then on either side, where his feet would have been, where his head would have been, she sees two angels. And there in between were his burial clothes. And if she would have looked closely, she would have seen blood splattered on those white linens. Jesus bled from seven places. How many times did the high priest sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat? Seven times. How many places did Jesus bleed from? Seven. He bled from his head where the crown of thorns was embedded into his skull. He bled from his back where the the cat of nine tails was driven into his flesh. 
He bled from his side where the spear was thrust into his side. He bled from his hands. He bled from his feet. These seven places, the blood is there to atone for our sins. For all the wicked thoughts you've harbored, there is blood to atone for those sins. Praise the Lord. For all the times you've turned your back on him, there is blood to atone for all those betrayals. From all the times you've given your heart to another God, Jesus bled from his side, from his heart. From all the times you used your hands to do wicked deeds, he bled from his hands. And from all the times you used your feet to walk away from him, he bled from his feet. There is blood to atone for each and every one of your sins. But you've got to confess them. Remember how the high priest, he laid his hands on the scapegoat and confessed. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Remember also what the high priest would say as he concluded everything and he had successfully carried out all of his duties. He would emerge once again in his priestly garments and he would say, it is finished. Now, can I just remind you again of what Jesus cried from the cross when the work was complete, when the price had been paid, when forgiveness had been secured, when the scarlet stain of sin had been removed and replaced with something that is whiter than snow. Jesus said, it is finished. Praise the Lord. Now, we get this intellectually. We understand this theologically. But what I need you to walk in practically is the reality of your forgiveness. Far too many Christians are burdened by guilt, racked with shame. And so the psalmist describes the blessings of the one who gets to walk in forgiveness when he says in Psalm 103 verse 12, and let's read this together out loud. I believe it's in your notes. As far as the east is from the west, So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Listen to me, Christian, those of you who can't get over, can't get past that thing that you did, that sin that you committed, that that, that thing that just haunts you. Jesus needs you to hear this today. Atonement has been made. The work is finished and your sins are forgiven. Not just covered over, but completely removed, taken away as far as the east is from the west. Here's how the Lord puts it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. He says, and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. God takes your sins. He sews them up into a bag. He casts them into a sea called forgetfulness. And he walks away and posts a no fishing sign. That's what God has done with your sins. Somebody say praise the Lord. It's possible because the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we're forgiven, but that gives us then access. This is the second thing I want to leave you with this morning. Because we're forgiven, that means we can now enjoy access into the Lord's presence. Remember, this day was all about the high priest going into the very presence of the Lord and how our sins barred us from accessing God's presence. But now through the cross, because of what Jesus accomplished through his death, you and I have access to God. Now, if I were to summarize, you know, what the entire Old Testament system and and the covenants and 
and, and, and the tabernacle, and then later on the temple, if I were to summarize kind of a, a, as a theme what that was all about with regards to the presence of God, the message would be, keep out, stay back, don't get too close. There was, in the temple days, a wall that said, hey, if you're not Jewish, if you're a Gentile, this is as close as you're going to get. And if you go any closer, you're going to die. Beyond that, there was another barrier, and it said, if you're a woman, this is as close as you can get. Don't go any closer, you're going to die. There was another barrier, and it said, this is for the priests, and if you're not the high priest, you can't get any closer. And then there was a veil, it was thick, and it barred the high priest from the presence of God, and he was only allowed into the presence once a year, and only if he had done absolutely everything right. But now, through the death of Jesus on the cross, the veil of his flesh was torn, and that's symbolized in the stone that was rolled away to give Mary access to the very seat upon which the blood has been splattered, where the cherubim sit. It, it symbolizes the presence of God, and so we're given this invitation in Hebrews chapter 10, and I wanted to read this together with you out loud. It's a bit lengthy, but I love all of it, so let's read it together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I've underlined one phrase that gets used three times in these verses. Let us. It's a, it's a bold invitation. If the, what was communicated under the old covenant was stay back, keep out, keep your distance, then the invitation under the new covenant is come on in. The Lord is inviting us as his people into his presence. And can I just finish with this? This is what you were created for. This is what God designed you for to walk in unbroken fellowship with him. And you don't approach him, you don't have to approach him with fear and trembling and trepidation. You don't cower before the Lord. He says, come with full confidence. Come with full assurance. Approach the throne of grace. Aren't you glad it's a throne of grace? It's not a throne of judgment, not if you're a believer in Jesus. It's a throne of grace where you can obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Why are you staying out there when God has invited you and provided the means to bring you into his very presence? When you get in the presence of God, it changes everything. It changes your mind. It changes your heart. It changes your perspective. It changes your focus. It changes your mood. It changes everything in your life. Everything is renewed. Everything is transformed. Everything falls into place in the Lord's presence. That's what makes heaven heaven. It's all about the Lord's presence. And so Jesus is saying, you can taste that. You can walk in that. And you can experience that even now. So let us draw near. And then let us hold fast, he says. 
Hold fast. That means don't let go. Don't waver in your faith. Don't think that it doesn't apply to you. Why? Because you've been sprinkled with the blood. There is blood to atone for each and every one of your sins. Blood not just to cover over, but blood to take away. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed your transgressions from you. So hold fast. Hold tight. Hold on to Jesus. And then do this. Let us provoke one another, stimulate one another, and encourage one another in our walks with the Lord. Never miss an opportunity to speak life over your fellow brothers and sisters. Parents, let me talk to you for just a second. When you address your kids, you speak over them what you see God has put in them. You don't, you don't cower to the lies that they're believing, but you speak what's true over them. You are a chosen vessel. You are anointed. You are gifted. You are God's beloved. God made you perfect. He has an amazing plan for your future. And we encourage one another and it draws out and it brings up all of those things that God created them to be. And we do that with one another. We worship with hearts filled with faith. We draw one another into the presence because that's what it's all about. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.